0: Welcome to Liquid Church Media. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins.
1: Happy Easter everybody. <laughs> this is going to be This is going to be an amazing Sunday, I can promise you that. Hey, if it's your first time, uh, welcome to Liquid. This is going to be an amazing Sunday, I can tell you uh, about that. Uh, I'm I'm Pastor Tim. If I haven't met you, I want to give a special welcome to all our brothers and sisters joining us in New Brunswick and Nutley. Can we hear it for those guys? Our campuses. Glad you guys are here today. Welcome. Resurrection Sunday you're watching online, maybe you're listening on radio or podcasts, glad you're here. Um, I want to open the story. My favorite joke is about the resurrection. You're probably going to run out of here, but uh, you may have heard of the pastor who had to give a sermon on the resurrection and uh, to the children of his church, and which is always a tough crowd because uh, you never know what kids are going to say. And uh, so he gathered all the kids in front of him and said, hey, who knows what, what a resurrection is? And a little boy waved his hand, oh, I know, I know, I know what a resurrection is. I heard about one on TV, and the pastor said, okay, what's a resurrection? And he said, well, if you have a resurrection lasting more than five hours, you should see a doctor. So just, that's for you. That's, that's, don't leave. Don't leave. Some people are thinking, I'm out of here. Others are like, leaning in, interesting kind of church. We are that church now. Uh, Well, I'm glad you're here. And here's the deal. We're going to talk about the literal resurrection of Jesus Christ today because we're a Christian church that believes in the physical, literal, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the cornerstone of our faith. We really believed that happened in human history as a factual event, not a myth. But if you've noticed, there's kind of a growing trend right now in modern culture that tends to separate the morals of Jesus from the miracles of Jesus. It separates the two. Have you noticed this? In fact, you may be here this morning and you say, well, yeah, I definitely value the moral teachings of Jesus. I think those are great ethical um, sayings to live by, you know, love your neighbor, turn the other cheek, do unto others, be kind to the poor. Those are great morals to live by. I try to follow them. I'm a Christian, but I'm a modern person, so I don't know a guy coming back from the dead, like, really? Is that, you know, do I, do I have to believe in a literal resurrection? Because I believe Jesus died. A lot, a lot of people do. Jesus died on a cross. He was buried in the grave, but three days later, supernaturally, His body raised to life. Maybe that's a little bit more legend. Modern minds have a hard time accepting the resurrection as historical fact. In fact, Thomas Jefferson, one of the founding fathers of our nation, was one of the first public figures to embrace the morals of Jesus but actually reject the miracles. Let me show you something interesting. Have you ever seen this? It's called the Jefferson Bible, okay? And this is a copy, a digital copy I got from the Smithsonian In Washington, D.C. And uh, in 1813, Thomas Jefferson, he went to work creating his own version of the Bible. This was our third president. He was a product of the Enlightenment. What that means is he valued human reason and logic above all else. If you can't prove it or measure it, you don't believe it. And Jefferson really admired Jesus's moral teachings, but he couldn't accept his miracles. So Thomas Jefferson took a razor and cut out every miraculous reference In the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, cut them out with a razor. Here is a picture. Take a look at the source Bible in the Smithsonian. You can see where he cut out all the miracles because his modern mind had a bias against the miraculous. And then what Jefferson did is he cut and pasted and reassembled the excerpts into his own version of the Bible, which you can see here. It is called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. Fascinating read. It's a very short read. 40% of the New Testament is about healing. But the Jefferson Bible only contains the moral, ethical teachings of Jesus minus the miracles. So, for instance, when Jesus is born, he's born in Bethlehem. He's wrapped in swatting clothes, and that's it. No angels announcing the Savior. No shining star. No wise men. He's like, that was all superstitious stuff. Jesus is born, period. Jesus is life. He's baptized. He gives a sermon on the mount. But that's about it. There's no showdown in the desert with the devil, None of that like demon business, that's all just supernatural stuff. So there's no miracles, no water turned to wine, no healing of the sick, the blind don't see, the lame do not walk. He cut out every supernatural reference because he believed. Jesus lived an inspired moral life, period. And so most notably, Jefferson's Bible ends with Jesus being crucified on a cross. I want to read this final verse to you. It says, they took his body, put it in the tomb, and went away. That's it, the end. No resurrection. Jefferson stripped that final miracle out because his mind just couldn't accept the miraculous. By the way, can you imagine if an American president did this today, by the way? Like if if CNN was like, President Obama announced he's assembling his own version of the Bible (laughs) based on only what he believes. It's called the Obama Bible, right? Fox News would go cray cray. That's like just (laughs) insane, right? See, Thomas Jefferson, nothing against Jefferson, he was a deist. That means he had a general belief in God as a higher power, but when it came to Jesus Christ, he actually denied his divinity. Jefferson believed Jesus was a good man, a holy man, but not the God man. Come, come in the flesh with the power to conquer Satan, sin and death forever. Now, I think the Jefferson Bible is actually a good symbol for how a lot of, particularly Westerners, we view the resurrection today, because almost everybody admires the morals of Jesus. Do unto others, oh, I like that. But we have a hard time accepting the miracles, especially the biggest one of all, Jesus's physical, bodily resurrection from the dead, why we celebrate Easter. But today, I want to show you how, honestly, the Christian faith, guys, it's not just this ethical system or a set of morals to, like, enhance your life. The gospel is not even a fuzzy feeling about God's love for you. Rather, it is a historical fact to believe in. In fact, the resurrection of Jesus is the central fact of Christian history. On it, the church is built. It is the foundation of the entire Christian faith. And fact is, if you cut out the resurrection of Jesus Christ... You cut holes in the entire story. The whole thing falls apart. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is what? Useless, and so is your faith. So if I'm Thomas Jefferson, I say, if Christ has not been raised, that's exactly right. He has not been raised. He's still in the grave. His body is rotting. And guess what? Our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Let's just cut that out. That's better, isn't it? See, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of the Jenga game. If you carve out the defining miracle of Christianity, the whole thing falls apart. So don't even bother trying to live like a little moral life, because my preaching is what? Useless. Some of you are like, I knew that already. (laughs) So is your faith back at you. That's the message of 1 Corinthians, a letter written by the Apostle Paul actually in 55 AD to a bunch of people who were wrestling with this issue. They had a hard time accepting the central truth of Christianity, that Jesus Christ really lived, that he really died, and that he was really raised to life, and now had the power to promise life eternal to anybody who puts their faith in him. So I want to show you today how this works for yourself. So would you take your Bible and open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to read this together. We're going to dissect it a little. And then I'm going to invite you to make your own decision about what to believe today. I'm not not threatening you. I'm just letting you know. I'm going to bring you to a point of decision where you, because we all have to decide about Jesus. Here's what 1 Corinthians 15 says. Paul writes, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel, the good news I preach to you. Which you received and on which you have taken your stand. In other words, the whole thing's built on this. By this gospel, you are saved if you what? Hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed what? In vain. Now listen, for what I receive, I passed on to you, as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, you can see it in the footnotes, and then to the twelve, the rest of the disciples. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, you can go ask them, though some have fallen asleep and died. Then he appeared to James, the brother of Jesus, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me, the apostle Paul. And what you realize is that Paul is giving a factually-based summary of a historical event that he claims literally happened in the first century. He's saying, hey, there are multiple eyewitness accounts. There are testimonies. There are people alive today that you can ask. They, they met with Jesus. They talked with Jesus. They ate with Jesus after he was raised from the dead. And he outlines the sources. Look at it in your text. It says, Jesus appeared first to the apostle Peter, Then the rest of the disciples, and then it says, this is amazing. I never, you know, you don't pay attention to this. More than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. Paul's writing this around, you know, 50 AD. In other words, he's like, I'm not making this up. You can actually go talk to them. They're still alive. Ask them yourself. And then he says, you can talk to James. That's Jesus' brother. Then to me, we had a little run-in with Jesus on the road to Damascus. But he's like, these are factual eyewitness encounters in the flesh that each of us had with the risen Christ. And if you don't believe that, then you have believed in vain. And the style of argument Paul is using here is a little something called reductio ad absurdum. I'm going to teach you a little Latin today, Ready? A little salsa. Here we go. Everybody say reductio ad absurdum. There you go. It's called, it's reduction to the absurd. That's what it means. You can Google this when you get home. And in Paul's day, this was a common form of argument in which you proved the statement was false by showing how absurd or ridiculous the results would be if it were true. So I'll give you an example we can relate to. Uh, This spring, our church is hosting a a 5K run, right? We're trying to raise money for clean water in impoverished countries. We're hoping a couple thousand people get out and run this 5K. Uh, My family signed up. I hope your family's going to sign up. But here's an example of reductio ad absurdum, okay? If I made the statement, we are running a 5K for elite athletes only, and therefore, Pastor Dave is going to win. <laughs> that's absurd, right? You're like, that ain't going to happen. <laughs> Actually violates the integrity of the right. You take a fact, and you say, it, if this were true, then this, this, and this would be true. That's crazy. If the 5K were for elite athletes, Pastor Dave would win. That's crazy. The reality is the 5K is for anybody. You don't even have to, you know, be in shape. You can walk, you can run, whatever. I hope you participate. But that's why a nerd like Pastor Dave could come in first. It's not for elite athletes. That's reductio ad absurdum. That's the Greek method of argumentation that Paul's employing here in 1 Corinthians 15. And what he's about to give you, and I want to show you today, is four arguments or four proofs for the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. He begins by saying, hey, if Christ hasn't been raised, then Christianity is a hoax. That is argument number one. If you're taking notes I put these in your program. You can fill in the blank there, follow along. If Christ hasn't been raised, Christianity is a hoax. And you guys know what a hoax is? What's a hoax? Hoax is a deliberately fabricated falsehood, right? That's kind of dressed up or made to masquerade as something true. For instance, if you've you've seen this uh, popular photo, the Loch Ness Monster, probably biggest modern hoax by Robert Wilson, shows this massive creature with a long neck peering up out of a lake in the Scottish Highlands. Put it back up, let people look at it. In the 1990s, this image was revealed to be a hoax because the photo was cropped to make the monster seem huge. They they analyzed this photo, and the object is actually only about two feet long. So it's most likely a swan or a water bird just kind of poking its head up. And you guys know what a hoax is. And, And Paul basically is saying, guys, if Jesus was not literally raised to life, if his body is still in the grave, it's just a skeleton rotting, or it was stolen, or the disciples hid it somewhere... Then all of you guys are suckas to what amounts to the most elaborate hoax in the history of the world. Christianity is a grand delusion that dwarfs the Loch Ness Monster. It is a global conspiracy that began, catch this, with 12 men in the first century who found 500 other gullible suckas who together conspired to fabricate a story and keep the truth a secret. So the theory would go something like this. Jesus died and the disciples were so heartbroken. Because they saw their savior murdered on a Roman cross. And they loved his ethical teaching so much, they didn't want it to end. So they got together in a room somewhere, and they're so grief stricken that they said, Man, Peter said, What a waste of time this is. They said, Yeah, figure where our fishing business could be. You know, they're, they're fired up now. And someone says, Wait, I got an idea. What if we pay off? the roman guards and 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 we'll we'll steal his body and and we'll keep this thing kind of going and and then we'll spend the rest of our lives traveling to the ends of the earth to convince people that he's still alive and we'll start here spreading it in the city where everybody knows us and can check it out for themselves and then we'll take it to greece and then to asia it'll be our secret and then to india until we get to the seat of the Roman Empire, and we finally trick Constantine into converting the entire Roman Empire to Christianity and we'll rule Europe. Does this sound like a plan? Ready? Go. That's a pretty good hoax right there. Reductio ad absurdum. It's ridiculous. See, what most people don't understand is that as Christians, we don't believe the resurrection is true because the Bible tells us so. This past spring, we've had 3,000 people read the New Testament cover to cover. And what we've realized, we've discovered the Bible is not a book. It's rather a library. It's a collection of books, of letters, of historical narratives, of ancient manuscripts written by multiple first-hand authors over several decades. And each one verifies what the other is saying. That's why there are four Gospels. It's not to contradict each other, but to corroborate the same story using different eyewitness accounts. For instance, the Apostle Luke, this is, listen to how he states the purpose of his gospel. He says this way. He says, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning so that you may know the what? The certainty of the things you have been taught. Does anybody know what Luke did for a living? He was a doctor. Yeah, he was a man of science. He was a Greek doctor. And he said, my purpose in writing this gospel is to investigate the facts. Okay, I interviewed firsthand eyewitnesses, and I organized all of this so that you may know the certainty of what you've been taught. Now, Luke's gospel was written by a man with a scientific bias. And when he reports the facts about Jesus' resurrection, he says that when the women went to visit Jesus' tomb on the first day of the week, his body was missing. And to their surprise, they were met by two angels who said these words, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he is, let's say it together, he is risen. These words are one of the reasons why historians regard, even secular historians, regard Luke's gospel as impeccable. They say it is very reliable as a first century source. Because they said, if Luke, a doctor, were trying to fabricate the story, make it up, to perpetrate a lie, he would never have chosen women as the ones to report on the resurrection. Because in first century culture, the testimony of women was invalid. It was unreliable. It was inadmissible in a court of law. I know, it's t- tough culture, okay? And yet Luke, here's a, here's a brilliant man in full knowledge of this. He bases the entire veracity of his gospel on their testimony. So either Luke is, yeah, woo, ladies. Either Luke is a sloppy scam artist, or that's how it really happened. In fact, Luke actually describes how the rest of the apostles were at first skeptical of the women's claims. Look what he says. He says, when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like what? Nonsense. So Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. They didn't believe it at first because they said, "I, I don't know if we can trust these ladies. They're not educated. That's how it was in the first century. And yet it's only after Jesus appears bodily to Peter and the disciples. They're behind locked doors. And all of a sudden Jesus is like, hello, that they finally changed their tune. It says while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw what? A ghost. But he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do your doubts rise in your minds? Look at my what? My hands and my feet as I myself touch me and see. And that's what Paul's getting at. He's like, we touched him. We saw him. And there are hundreds of us who have these eyewitness testimonies, not just me, but hundreds of us still living that you can verify with this. We met, and we saw, and we ate with, and we touched the resurrected Christ. In essence, Paul's saying, if you got the Bible of its eyewitness account, no, he's not risen. He's not there. You didn't find him. Who knows where he is? The whole thing falls apart. Do you understand this? It's ridiculous. Reductio ad absurdum. The most elaborate scam ever perpetrated on thousands of people by a ragtag bunch of fishermen and powerless women in the first century. So Christianity is a hoax if Jesus isn't alive. Not only that, all 12 disciples were delusional. Because if these accounts are really a conspiracy, that means every one of them went to their grave, refusing to recant and suffered horrific, violent deaths. Every one of them was willing to die for a lie. Think about this. We have all told some whoppers in our lives, but would you be willing... To be beheaded, if you wouldn't recant what you said you saw, would you be willing to be beaten? How about boiled alive, crucified upside down, just to keep your little secret going? Guys, this to me is the number one most convincing proof of Jesus' resurrection. The apostles died the most violent martyr's death for refusing to recant their faith. 11 of the 12 begin with Matthew. Executed by sword in Ethiopia. Mark died in Egypt after being dragged through the streets by wild horses and torn to pieces. Luke that doctor hanged in Greece because of his bold preaching to the lost. John John was sentenced to the mines on the prison island of Patmos where he wrote Revelation the last book of the Bible. He's the only apostle not to die a violent death. He died of old age albeit in prison. How about James the brother of Jesus? First off can you imagine having Jesus as an older brother? <laughs> Talk about a bummer, right? <laughs> you, know, you get punished at school, and you come home, and your parents just go, why can't you be more like your brother? You know, <laughs> How bad would that be? And the, fir- the truth is this. Guys, in the Gospels, at first, James did not believe Jesus. It actually says that none of his brothers believed him. How many of you have a brother? How many of you have an older brother? Can I just ask you, I'll be honest, what would it take for you to believe your brother was God? What would he have to do to prove that? Maybe rise from the dead? (laughs) James did not believe his brother until Jesus was raised from the dead. And then James went on to lead the entire church in Jerusalem until he was taken to the roof of the temple because he refused to recant what he saw. And his enemies threw him off of the roof of the temple. And he survived, and so they went down and stoned him to death. The rest of the apostles suffered similar grisly fates. Peter, he was crucified upside down. Why? According to tradition, he told his tormentors he felt unworthy to die in the same way that he saw his Savior die. He said, Take, turn me upside down. That's taking the joke a little bit far, isn't it, wouldn't you think? What was the message that got each of these men martyred for their faith? Peter preached it boldly in Acts. He said, God has raised this Jesus to life and we're witnesses of it. It's a fact. They didn't die for what they believed. They died for what they said they saw. That's what caused so much persecution. It's one thing to say, Jesus is a good moral teacher. It's another to say, I touched him. I saw him. I ate with him. It's not a feeling. It's a fact. You want to take an ax to ax? Just rip out the rest of the Bible because forget it. It makes no sense. You can try to cut it out, Peter said. You can try to beat it out of me, but I'm not going to recant. I'm not going to betray what I saw my Lord do. And I'm willing to be tortured and die because I believe God raised this Jesus to life and he'll raise me as well. Amen? That's his message. And they staked their life on it as a fact. And they had no doubt No recantation. Even Thomas, the doubter, who put his hands in Jesus' nail prints in his side. He took news of Jesus' resurrection all the way to India, where he was speared to death on a missionary trip to plant churches. Eleven of the apostles died a grisly, violent death, including the apostle Paul, who wrote half of the New Testament. Paul was executed in Rome by Nero in AD 67. Death by what? decapitation. That's his head in the painting, rolling on the ground. Now you think about this. What are the chances? What are the chances that 12 grown men would construct such a grand hoax because they so valued the the moral teachings of Jesus? And when faced with excruciating torture and death, rather than recant their elaborate lie, they chose instead to be speared stabbed, hanged, boiled alive, and crucified upside down just to keep the hoax going. Reductio ad absurdum, Paul says. It's ridiculous beyond belief. The disciples would have to be delusional. And not only that, but in the decades that followed, the thousands of converts who believed them, thousands of converts to Christianity in Rome, rather than admit their deception, they chose instead to be mauled by lions in the Colosseum. Look at the painting. Some of them chose to be smeared in pitch and set aflame to light the emperor's gardens. Voluntarily choosing to die for a lie, a legend, a myth? I don't think so. Reductio ad absurdum. It's ridiculous. We're witnesses of this. So for you to deny the truth of what thousands of men and women and martyrs down through the ages sacrificed their lives to proclaim their faith in the gospel, I don't have enough faith for that. Would you die for a lie? If Christ has not been raised, Paul says, then Christianity is a hoax, the disciples are delusional, and your faith is futile. Say futile. Futile. Argument number three, look at verse 17, it says this, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Futile means pointless. Having no purpose whatsoever, it's fruitless. You've got nothing to show for your faith. Which means we have to actually cancel out everything that happened last Sunday at our baptism services. Just cancel it all out. Dozens of men and women, boys and girls, getting into a tub of water, wearing t-shirts that say, I have decided to follow a lie. Ah, ah, too bad. Suckers. Reductio ad absurdum. How ridiculous would that be? How arrogant do you have to be? Those of you who witnessed those baptisms, you heard stories of life change that left me speechless, honestly. You heard people enslaved by addiction, set free by the power of the risen Christ. People without hope, filled with despair, finally actually feeling the Father's love for them. People like Edwin Rivera at our Nutley campus. I love this. He lost the love of his life nine years ago, and she died tragically, and his life kind of spiraled downward. But he started, he, started, he was telling us how God's spirit began healing his broken heart and brought him to this point of decision. He said, you know, it's time for me to actually shift my focus to God and move past the pain in my life, and he put his trust in Jesus, and he says, I'm now filled with the spirit. I have new purpose for living. We baptize dozens of people who were hurting, who were hopeless, people who committed atrocious sins. You guys know, we're a bunch of ragtags. People who committed adultery, who had abortions, addictions, they come up out of the way and said, I'm free of my guilt and my shame. But see, there's no resurrection. (laughs) What is all of that? I guess, I don't know. Delusion? No. If Christ is alive, then he has conquered sin and death, and sins can be forgiven. Amen? Amen? Do you believe that? We can be set free from the guilt and shame by God's amazing grace. Do you want proof Jesus is alive? If the Christian faith is futile, how do you explain Kathy? I stood in that baptismal with her last week, and for 30 years... Her story was one of one heartbreak after another until she met Jesus.
0: I was raised in a Christian home, Christian church. I had a wonderful upbringing, but everything fell apart during my teenage years when my parents' marriage fell apart. I started rebelling against God. I started going to parties, drinking, doing drugs. I also developed a serious eating disorder and I had to be hospitalized for that. And at that point in time, I was an adult. I met my husband. 10 years into the marriage, I discovered that my husband was having an affair. And so the marriage ended in divorce and I was absolutely devastated. I was looking for comfort and I just, I, I dove right back into dating. I started dating a childhood boyfriend of mine who was also hurting. I got a knock on Knock on my apartment door telling me, they were telling me that uh, my boyfriend Gary was shot and killed in live duty. And my spirit was just crushed. Again, I found myself asking God, What? <laughs> what? Like, how could you let this happen again? I'm trying to start over. It was the darkest time of my life. I actually contemplated ending my own life. Jesus, He just held on to me. I kept on hearing the biblical. Verses that I learned as a child, especially Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. That was the Holy Spirit speaking to me and just calling, calling me back to Himself. I said, "All right, I surrender." Jesus began to heal and transform me, and during that time, I met my wonderful husband John. And as a bonus. God bless us with a beautiful sun. And now I I find I have a new purpose for my life. I I want my life to shine for Jesus. I want to be baptized today because I want to show my friends and family that I am humbled and so honored to call myself a follower of Christ.
1: The old has gone, the new has come, and that's what we're witnessing today in this water. Upon your profession of faith, we baptize you now. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Can we hear it for Kathy? She's one of thousands of people. Friends, that's not futility. That is a woman forgiven and set free by Jesus Christ. Kathy went through it all, drugs, drinking, and eating disorder, a husband who cheated on her. She has every right, every excuse to be bitter and depressed about life. But instead, she's like, Tim, I'm full of actually hope in a new future because the resurrection of Jesus puts broken lives back together. Amen? Jesus is alive. He still speaks. He still heals. He still cleanses. He puts shattered people back together. And listen to me. Those of you who are going through something similar Right now, Christ will give you hope if you put your faith in him today. That's the final challenge I want to I leave you with. If you're here today and you have never put your faith in Christ, because scripture says, if there is no resurrection, unlike Juan, unlike Kathy, you have no hope. That's a hopeful moment. <laughs> Look at Paul's final argument in 1 Corinthians. He says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ we are of all people most to be what? Pitied. Most Greeks didn't believe that people's physical bodies would be resurrected after death. They saw life after death as something that like happens to this mystical soul. But Christianity, by contrast, you know what it affirms? That our body and soul will be reunited after our resurrection because that's what happened to Jesus. He is our pattern. He's our model, the first fruits of what God has in store for you and me. And that's why Paul can write, death, where is your sting? Because Jesus conquered the grave, death has been defeated. So we still feel the temporary effects of sin and disease and death in a broken world. But we now have hope for our future in heaven because the kingdom has broken into our world. Amen? So your life on earth now has meaning. It's actually going somewhere. It's not going towards destruction. People think, like, the world's going to be destroyed. It's going towards renewal. And what you do on earth now counts for eternity. Paul says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're of all people most to be, what's the word again? Pitied. You know what the Greek is? Pathetic. Paul's basically like, if Jesus was just a moral teacher, then you Christians are pathetic. Because if he's just giving you a little bit of inspiration for your 70 or 80 brief little years here on earth, that's pathetic. If Christ died and he took his teachings to the grave with him, why are you even bothering trying to make a difference? Why why do you feed the poor? Why why do you volunteer with, with special needs kids? Why do you take trips to foreign countries to bring clean water to impoverished families? None of it counts. Yesterday, some of you went to Staten Island to help serve families who were victims of Hurricane Sandy. They're still digging out. We're continuing our relief work there with spring cleanup, and Paul's like, look at that. Why did people do that? Because they're moral people? Eh, it doesn't count. You don't do it because you're moral people. You do it because you realize it all counts. And Jesus says, whatever you did for the least of these, my brothers, you did for who? Me. That's why Christians take care of their aging parents. That's why you stand alongside your friend and support him in his recovery. Because if there's no life after death... Why bother with any of that? None of it matters in God's eyes. Do you see what Paul's saying? He actually writes, he says, If the dead aren't raised, let's say it together, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, he's like, It sounds like a pirate. Argh. <laughs> if there's no resurrection, none of what you do matters in life anyway. Why bother living by a moral code? Just get as much pleasure for yourself as possible. Eat and drink and party on, because there's no hope of heaven. Here's the vision. When you die, you get put in a pine box and take a dirt nap. Woo! That's inspiring. Reductio ad absurdum, Paul says, it's crazy. Even those of you who are skeptics know this. You know you were built for it. You have eternity in your heart. The world is not headed for disaster but redemption, the renewal of all things beginning with us. Because if Christ is not raised and you don't believe, then all you can do is look at your future with fear. Because you know that sin and death and decay wins the day. There's still 100% death rate. And all you can look forward to is God's judgment and wrath. I want you to think about your loved ones who have died. Paul says, then those also who have fallen asleep, that means died, in Christ are, what's the word? Lost means perishing in hell for all eternity. Hell is not a popular word. I understand that. But Paul's like, if Jesus isn't raised, all, all your loved ones who died in Christ... They're all lost in hell. So that means my grandmother, okay, who who, who we lost two years ago, who loved Jesus. My grandmother, who took care of my invalid grandfather for 20 years, as he descended into Alzheimer's. And every morning, she would bathe him and shave his face and dress him for the day. And the only time she would leave him was for an hour on Sunday, to go to her church and play the organ so people could sing songs to Jesus. So when she died two years ago, in her casket said, finally home, eh, not really. She's probably in hell with Hitler, along with Mother Teresa and Bin Laden. Reductio ad absurdum. My grandmother and all the believers in your families. Young and old, every saint who has died down through the ages, clinging to the hope of the resurrection, are today, right now, alive in Jesus Christ. Safely at home in the everlasting arms of their Savior. Because they believed. They didn't believe in a feeling. They believed in the fact of Jesus' resurrection. They said, we're witnesses of it. And you're a witness of it. In fact, we can say it together. 1 Corinthians 6.14 can we read this together, all our campuses, Liquid Church, big loud voice. Let's read it together. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you believe that? Yes. Do, I said, do you believe that? Yes. That's a fact. It's a fact, and it's tethered to a promise. Christ was raised from the dead, him first, then you and me. That's our hope. That's the good news. That's God's promise. And it's what millions of people have staked their life on over the last 2,000 years. They staked their life on it. If you don't believe that this morning, can I just ask you, why not? What are you waiting for? I honestly believe that Easter Sunday is the best day of the year to become a Christian. To put your faith in Christ. And that's what I want to give you a chance to do right now. It's to make a commitment to Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. If you're here today... And you have never believed, you've never put your faith in Jesus for the salvation of your soul and the resurrection of your body. I'm going to give you a chance to do that in just a minute by raising your hand and I'm going to ask you to pray with me, okay? But I want to give everybody in this room watching online, Nutley New Brunswick, I want to give you a chance to make this personal right now. And settle this question of your eternity once and for all. Because I know right now, I know it, that Jesus is alive. And he's speaking to people in this room this morning. Even now, you might be feeling that. He's stirring that faith in your heart. He's he's telling you to trust him today. Don't quench the spirit. That's God speaking to your soul. This is a day of salvation for you, okay? On Sunday, there was a man in our service who had a seizure, 39 years old. At that moment, what he believed was decisive. That is where the rubber meets the road. Nothing is promised, not a day more than you have today. And so the question is, what do you believe? What are you staking your life on? Is it a feeling? Is it a fact? So let me make this very clear to you. If you are willing to put your faith in Christ to become a Christian, I want to make this very simple as A, B, C. Being saved is a matter of A, admitting what God knows about you. That is your sin. (laughs) I realize sin is not a popular word, but it's reality in this broken world. What that means is that God created you, and me for perfection, but we have all fallen short of his ideal. We've all done things to offend God. We're part of the problem. The Bible actually says if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So salvation begins with A, admitting your sin, and then B, believing in Jesus. On the cross, God dealt decisively with your sin once and for all. By dying for you, Jesus died as your substitute. On the cross, he paid your debt out of love. And when you put your faith in him, Christ will forgive you. And here's what the Bible promises about salvation. Look at this verse. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is my Lord, and say it together, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen? Amen. Believe in his resurrection today and see, commit to follow Christ with your whole heart with your whole heart. This is not a one-time decision I'm asking for. This is your head. This is your heart commitment. You're deciding to live the rest of your life for the glory of your God. Jesus was raised to life, and he wants to live his life through you. So understand this. When you put your faith in him right now, he's gonna send his spirit and give you a new power to live for him. Not perfectly, but with God's power, not yours. And you're gonna be joining a global movement called the church, a church of believers. And this church, this community of believers, we are here to support you, and and help you as we follow Jesus together. Those are the ABCs of how to become a Christian and know with certainty that you are saved. And so I'm gonna give you a chance to make that decision right now. If you are here today and you are ready to receive salvation, I I wanna pray for you first. So all our campuses, could we just do this? Let's bow our heads. Father, I ask right now for response from people who are coming into the kingdom. They're being born again. People receiving, this is their spiritual birthday. They're receiving salvation. All heads bowed. At our campuses, I want to pray for you. If you are ready to put your faith in Jesus Christ right now, would you raise your hand straight up so I can pray for you? Just shoot your hand straight up. You may have drifted far from Christ. You may want to recommit your life to Christ right now. Just go ahead, shoot them up. I see them. Thank you. God bless you. Put them every location. Our campus pastors are here. They're watching. We want to pray for you right now. Keep them up. And here's what I'm going to do right now. If your hand is up, keep them up. Right where you are, I'm going to ask you to stand up. I'm standing up. Join me. Stand up right where you are. Go ahead. All of you stand on up. There's a few more of you who need to stand on up. Come on. Stand on up. This is a moment for you. This is a moment between you and God. All right? All of campus is standing. I'm going to lead you in a prayer right now to ask Jesus into your life. You're putting your faith in Christ, the hope of heaven. You're going to have a new life begin right now. Would you just, with your all heads bow, pray right now. Father, I admit my sin. But I believe Jesus died to forgive me, that he was raised to save me, come into my heart, Holy Spirit, I turn from my sin and give my life to Jesus Christ. Be my Savior and be my Lord. I will follow you all of my days. Father God, I ask right now by the Holy Spirit, would you set your seal of deposit on these new believers, Lord? Would you let them know that they are forgiven, that they are saved for the forgiveness of sins in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who lives. And all God's people said together, amen. Amen. Give them a big hand. Welcome to the family of God. (laughs) Praise God for you guys. Praise God for you guys. And happy Easter.